morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, May 25th, we're studying Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. When Peter returns to Jerusalem, he faces criticism for staying and eating with Gentiles. After Peter recounts what happened, though, the church gives glory to God, who has included Gentiles in repentance and faith in Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be with you again today. As we get started, let's talk a little context. We're in a pretty pivotal section of the book of Acts. Pastor Hoppe, what should we know as we look at the first part of Acts chapter 18 today? Well, I think particularly, you know, for the material we'll be covering now, I mean, we kind of need to know that what has come before in chapter 10, um, all that Peter uh, goes through his vision and then his visit to Cornelius's house, um, all of that, right, occurred, so to speak, in Acts chapter 10. But word of that has now made its way to Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, Peter also will make his way way to Jerusalem. And that is, uh, you know, then we're going to kind of have, uh, if you want to, the debriefing after all of this uh, back in Jerusalem. And so, you know, that's the immediate context. But I think, you know, uh, in a little bit broader of a context, uh, this is really important because we have here now the word going out uh, more and more so to the Gentiles. Uh, and so, you know, even as we uh, heard originally that the disciples were to take the word right to Jerusalem and Samaria uh, and to the ends of the earth, um, you know, we can really say here if we have this Roman Gentile uh, um, you know, uh, what do I want to say? Roman Gentile man uh, here, and he is hearing now of the gospel. It's not going to be too long until everybody has at least had an opportunity to hear. One of the things that stands out about this text is that a lot of it is going to sound very familiar. We're, we're in you know, Acts chapter 10, as you pointed out. That's the immediate context where Peter has his vision. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He preaches there in the house of Cornelius. Here at the beginning of Acts chapter 11, we're going to get a lot of repeat, particularly of what was in the beginning of, of Acts chapter 10. Peter's going to recount it again, which means that St. Luke, when he wrote it, he wrote it down twice, but he, he did it, I think, for a reason. What should we make of that? The fact that Luke takes the time to record this happening, or not recording happening, but record it twice in the way that he does. Right. So you almost think, you know, if you were writing this today, you could, you know, you'd almost just say, you know, go back to chapter 10 if you don't know what I'm talking about, right? right. But, but he recounts uh, really the whole thing again here. And again, that would not be odd for Peter to do necessarily, right? To tell the whole story. But the fact that it's recorded twice for us is, is probably the odd kind of part of it all. Um, and I think 
why he does it, or at least the one thing we can see in the book of Acts, is really the things that are repeated, uh, both this story with Cornelius, and then also uh, if we once we get into the you know the accounts of Paul, of course that's you know started already too. But as Paul uh, goes out more and more, he retells at different times, you know, his experience there on the road to Damascus. And if you think about it, both of those are very centered on the message going out to the Gentiles. And so uh, I think we can say there might be two possible reasons why that would be highlighted or repeated. One is so that the Jewish people might kind of hear uh, time and time again that God's mercy has, in fact, been extended to all people, which we know is something they were rather hesitant to in the beginning. Uh, But also, uh, I think Luke here, too, might uh, be uh, knowing that part of his audience, if not a large part of his audience, might be Gentile as well, and wants to assure them that this message is for them, and it has been, you know, by the time they might read this gospel, it has been for quite some time, and that, you know, the big figures, Paul and Peter, uh, all confirmed that it was for them as well. So, in in recording it twice, and again, as, as you said, Luke could have, as chapter 11 begins here, he could have said, now, Peter went back to Jerusalem, he was questioned, and so he told them what had happened, and they listened, and, and could have just left it as a narrative that would have taken maybe three verses. Instead, he chooses to record Peter's recounting of the event, and I think you're right, that the just the momentous nature of the Gentiles being included in this way merits that kind of attention from Luke's pen. And for the reasons that you mentioned, both for the Jews and the Gentiles alike to know that the inclusion of the Gentiles within the Christian church like this is for the, is, is God's idea. This is not Peter's idea. It's not any man's idea, but this is God's intention to include the Gentiles. So Luke emphasizes that for his readers. Then what, what about us today? As we read the text of the book of Acts, and we come across this like, well, I read this already. How how should we approach sections like this? And as you mentioned, we're going to encounter this later in the book of Acts with Saul, Paul's conversion. How do we approach that? What should be our, what, how should we look at these texts when we're like maybe tempted to skip over them and say, well, I read that already. I, I know what happened. I'm just going to move on to verse 19. What do we do with it? Well, I think in one sense, you know, it it actually calls for us to be attentive to the Word of God, right? Because while the same story is told, and it almost is seemingly the exact same, it's really not. There are a couple added details and things that we get in this account. And so, you know, while we, I know, you know, I can be tempted to do that at times too, just even if you're familiar with a passage, right, you can be tempted, oh yeah, I know this one, you know, I'll go on to the next Mm -hmm. uh, major section. And I think it's a call for us to be attentive and also, again, a call for us to, you know, ask that question, which we just, you know, tried to answer, which is, well, why is this here? Um, And also to understand, right, always that, you know, there are... um, you know, in different times, uh, things are obviously presented differently. And so it might be too here, the the Jewish people tended to like to repeat things uh, to help uh, put them to, into the mind and into the heart. So there may be just some of that too. I don't think they probably would have found this quite as odd as we do. 
That's probably a good point, Pastor Oppie, that what we find is odd, this repetition isn't going to be odd for Luke's original readers and for the, the culture to which he writes. Now, and I think, too, it's I, I've said this before, because as you know, planning out, how are we going to break up the book of Acts to study it here on, on Sharper Iron? We could. We could have taken these texts all together. It sure is a lot of text to cover at once. But when you recognize the similarities, you could you could group them together. In my own reflections, part of my decision making, at least in this case, was to say, you know, the Holy Spirit recorded this twice. He provided for St. Luke to write it down twice. So it must be important. And it's probably worth our while to take a look at it twice. Even if some of it gets repeated, that's okay, because the Holy Spirit took the time to do that. Yeah, I think that's very much true. And I think the other thing, you know, that might be good for us to realize is, again, to think about how big of an issue this was of the inclusion of the Gentiles, because, you know, there's a lot of talk of this in the scriptures. And yet for us, you know, it's so far distance from our from our reality. And most of us are in churches, you know, where if we could uh, find a, you know, a Jewish heritage Christian, right, that that would be the odd thing. Um, and so I think it's good just to go back because it really forces us to think about how God uh, brought his salvation to the nations uh, and how he used the Jewish nation also, uh, you know, in times of old to, uh, you know, the, kind of the whole first to the Jew, then to the Gentile kind of dynamic there. I think it's something we kind of, we just want to fly by, but we know that in the early church, this was kind of maybe the first big controversy in the church that the church really had to wrestle with. And that's a very good point, Pastor Hoppy. I, I think you're right that today with the church being as Gentile it, as it is, or at least in our context, that we forget just how big of a shift this really was. And and just if we think back to, well, we're going to read it here again today, Peter's objection to what he sees from the Lord at first shows you just how big of a, a leap this was in his own mind, and certainly for the people who are there listening to him as well. And so we're going we're gonna to see that. We get a chance to, to remember just how big of a, a deal this is that the Gentiles are included. So let's go ahead and turn to the text. We are in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, 
John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's our text for today. That's Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Robbie, before we dig into the, the details of this text, just give us the overall impression. What's, what's going on here? What's the controversy? How does Peter help the church resolve it? All right. And again, I mean, we might say that probably, probably the overall point here is very similar to what we saw in chapter 10. But I really think here what we see is, you know, Peter making a defense, of course, of what happened. And his main defense is pretty simple. He's going to basically say, God brought this all about, right? He didn't, this wasn't something Peter woke up one day and decided to do, but God, through the vision, through the, you know, sending of an angel to Cornelius, through all these things that happened, he's the one that brought this all about. And again, as we go through this text, I might just encourage people to keep listening to kind of the, the passive tense, right? God gave them repentance. Well, here at the end, right? Uh, and even just, you know, right up front here uh, that they're, you know, the Gentiles are receiving the word. All of these kind of things just point, this is God's activity. And therefore, Peter says, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stand in the way of God, right? Is essentially, and, you know, it's a pretty ironclad argument. And in fact, it's received as such at the time, right? Uh, they, they seem to be convinced by this line of argumentation that, yes, Yes, if God brought this all about, it would be rather odd for us now to say, no, I, you know, on second thought, I shouldn't have went to Cornelius's house, you know. Uh, so I think, you know, we see that basic principle uh, that God is doing this, that Peter is simply uh, being swept up in God's plan, and that overall God's plan, right, is to save all people, even calling those uh, who were formerly thought of as unclean, calling them now clean in Jesus. So all of this, the the majority of our text is that speech by Peter, the sermon by Peter, however we want to think about it, his recounting of what happened. The stage gets set for that in the first three verses of the text. What do we learn in the first three verses of the text that really set the context for what Peter's going to say? Well, I mean, we find out right here that, uh, you know, it says that, you know, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea uh, heard about this. So this is what I was saying, you know, from chapter 10 to 11, the word is traveled. And Caesarea, you know, and uh, Jerusalem were not particularly close to each other. Uh, you know, and we often think, uh, you know, thinking back on ancient times that, you know, you, a word couldn't travel fairly fast, but obviously it did here. Mm. And so when Peter gets, you know, back to Jerusalem, uh, right away, we have uh, some translations. In fact, you know, the English standard that you read, I believe, right, has the circumcision party 
criticized him literally there in the Greek. It's just kind of those of the circumcision, you know, um, mm. and, but there's obviously all ta- all sorts of talk here uh, using that word circumcision or again in verse three, right? Then the claim is, well, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Um, now, we should say that, you know, as you read through the scriptures, there does seem to be maybe a developing group of Jews who are going to be very, very insistent on the fact that circumcision is still of great importance. Whether that's already here, uh, you know, something that's going on, that there's this organized party, as the English Standard Version uh, would suggest, it's also party possible here. All we mean is that these are Jewish uh, Christians who are criticizing him just again for the fact that he went to Gentiles. Um, I don't think we really need to figure that out exactly because it kind of works out the same. But that's kind of where we begin is, you know, we get uh, Peter having this experience and now people are sort of starting to buzz with the news. Wait a second, why did he go? And it's always kind of interesting here is that he, uh, you know, they hear that, that they've received the word of God. They don't seem to all that concerned about that or to doubt that really they're most concerned about how it happened right how did these gentiles come to receive the word of god and the only answer of course was that peter uh, and as he says his companions uh, will hear right uh, went down uh, and intermingled with these gentiles went into their house uh, ate with them uh, all of these things and and that's their main concern Uh, before we get too far on the the circumcision group, those are the circumcision. However, we're going to speak about them. Just it, it strikes me in, in the very first verse, the the picture of the church that we get from the way that's described that you've got the apostles and and brothers throughout Judea, they're hearing about what's going on elsewhere in the Christian church. It's a it's a more dynamic picture than I think sometimes I have in my own mind that that there's actually, you know, these communications already happening between various Christians. And at this point, just throughout Judea is all that Luke tells us about, but it, it is going to keep growing as we'll see. But just the, the nature of the, the movement and the sharing of news within the church, I find helpful for me personally, because sometimes I, I tend to think of the ancient world as a little more static. And, and here it's very clearly not that the news is, is traveling from place to place. They're all hearing about it. And the apostles are included in this, that they're not always just stationed there in Jerusalem. But as we've even seen with Peter, they're going throughout the church visiting. And yet they do come back to Jerusalem, it seems, as sort of the the mother church. That's kind of the place where everything starts from, as Jesus even said. So just that picture of the church, I don't want to pass by that too quickly, just to, to see that before we move into the, the main part of this, which is the, who these people of the circumcision are. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think it is, uh, you know, something that we need to be reminded of. Um, and so often we, you know, think of, of course, our day as whatever you want to say, better or more, you know, we have everything better. But you think about in this day and age, right, how many people, you know, the different merchants and things like that, that are traveling from place to place, and they're doing more than carrying goods, right? They're carrying also mm-hmm. stories uh, of what's going on in the rest of the world. And yeah, I think we we underestimate how much that went on. 
So with these people of the circumcision, as you said, and, and this is a group that does become more prominent or maybe a little more solidified in their views, it seems, as the as the Christian church goes on. You said it's it's not so much the what that the word of God went to the Gentiles, but it's the how. What What is their problem with the how of the going to them and eating with them? Why does this bother them? Right. And so, you know, the main thing here is this whole idea, and this is what's kind of, you know, sort of lingering over this whole discussion is this idea of clean and unclean, right? And so, I mean, this obviously comes up with the actual food, you know, laws uh, that are dealt with in this this vision uh, that Peter, um, you know, receives. But it also is this broader thing to get us to this understanding that the Jews had this very simple idea that beyond all of the other specifics of what made you clean and unclean, the Jewish people in their mind were clean and the Gentiles were unclean. Now, part of that, right, had to deal with the fact that the Gentiles did not follow all those other ways of God, right? And so while a Jew uh, might, and probably all Jews did, you know, fairly often uh, end up in a state of being unclean, um, the Gentiles were thought to live in sort of constant uncleanness right so they're not they're not ever clean um and so again even going into their house right because if you go into someone's house in this day the likelihood that you're going to eat with them is very likely and if you're going into a gentile's house you're likely going to end up eating unclean things uh, one, one of the things i read in preparation for this which i had never really read before was a suggestion that one of the reasons the Gentiles didn't like the Jews much uh, was because with these food laws, uh, they would not, of course, eat pork. And that even, you know, it's much similar to our day, but even in those days, that was sort of the cheapest, uh, you know, meat you could have. And so, you know, it was thought of almost as the Jews were a little, you know, stuck up that they wouldn't eat, uh, you know, the cheap meat that you could buy uh, in the markets or whatever. Um, so this went, it, it went both ways. But for the Jews, it was not about, of course, we'll only eat the finest meats in the sense of, you know, expense. But this is what God had told them. And we don't want to miss this here. When we talk about how the people thought about this, we don't want to discount the fact that this is how God arranged things, right? They didn't just decide on these food laws. You know, they're laid out, uh, you know, the particular clean and unclean meats, for instance, are laid out in Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, so very specific there. But but that's the whole thing going on here again, I guess, is just this idea that if you're you're visiting with a Gentile, and particularly if you're in his house, you're likely to come into contact with unclean things. And the general rule, as you know, in the Levitical law even, is that if you're clean and you come into contact with something unclean, you're unclean, right? And so people wanted to avoid those situations. So with their, I mean, and that that makes sense again. And as you said, this is this is something that God gave them in the Old Testament to do was to avoid the unclean things, to stick only with the clean things and the the connection of the Gentiles with all, everything that was unclean, you, you can see how all these things followed. 
as you pointed out, though, it, it doesn't seem that their objection is that the word of God went to them, but the the way in which it happened. So, and I, this may require a little bit of looking forward as to what else we know, kind of how their argumentation comes about when it comes to this circumcision party, as the ESV calls it. What would what would their process have been then? What what would they have had Peter do instead of? going, eating, and then giving the word of God, what would they have had Peter do to get the word of God to these unclean Gentiles? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm not so sure they they really, I mean, like I said, they don't seem to have any problem that it occurred. And I, I tend to think, and maybe you've got a little different, you know, take on this. I tend to think it is that right up front, they sort of get the problem that if they're going to argue with the fact that the Gentiles receive the word of God, they're arguing against God's activity. And so it's much easier to argue against Peter's activity. So they, you know, even though, yes, God's the one that sent them there. It's much easier for them when Peter is before them to say, hey, look at what you did. You broke these cleanliness laws, right? These Levitical laws, and they don't want to so much go against that. I mean, I suppose in the broadest sense, they would be fine sort of if, uh, you know, uh, Peter is going about things in a way that's consistent with all the Jewish traditions and laws and the Gentiles happen to hear. But the particular problem here is that he specifically goes to visit the Gentiles. And maybe maybe what I'm thinking of is, is more in terms of the way Paul approaches some of these similar issues or related issues in his epistles and what comes up at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, such that, and again, maybe I'm reading too much back into Acts 10 and 11 with this, but I, I imagine that this group would not have had an issue with what Peter did if he had told Cornelius and everybody there at his house, look, first get circumcised if you're a male and and start eating clean foods and and go through all of that purification then I'll come and eat with you if he had gone that direction you know first you do all the cleanliness stuff then I'll preach the word of god to you instead he just ignores all the cleanliness stuff entirely and preaches the word of god i guess maybe that that's kind of what i'm thinking that's that's the way i see it happening later and maybe i don't know maybe i'm reading it back i'm not sure but that's kind of what i was what I was thinking. No, I, I think you're probably right there as well. Yeah, that um, the the problem again, yeah, is that he's trying to take uh, people from Gentile to Christian and not taking them through being Jewish on the way, I guess would be one way to say it, right? And so that does seem to be, I think, you know, and again, I guess we don't know exactly how uh, ensconce those ideas where, I mean, one of the interesting things about Cornelius, of course, is that, you know, he's said to be God-fearing and righteous. Right. Um, and so, obviously, he already has some interaction uh, with the Jewish uh, ways and the Jewish God and the Jewish scriptures. And so, you know, he's not uh, complete, you know, as far as I suppose Gentiles go, uh, they seem to think of him better than they would others. But I think you're right. Ultimately, it's like, let's complete that process for as far as we know, at least, uh, I don't think anyone that I've ever read suggests that, you know, Cornelius would have, you know, officially have been circumcised or something uh, as a, you know, as a religious uh, right to, to, you know, become a Jew. Uh, but he obviously had some affinity for the teachings that he heard there. 
Right. But but as you pointed out, all of that is, is beside the point when Peter goes to preach to him. He goes and preaches Christ. And we'll f- pick up more of that on the other side of the break as we look at Peter's account of what happened. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking to Acts 11 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. We'll be right back. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 25th. We are looking at Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were looking at the context in which Peter is given to explain what happened in Acts chapter 10. Those who are of the circumcision are criticizing Peter for going to the uncircumcised, staying with them, eating with them. And then Peter recounts what happened. And as, as we've already talked about, Luke gives us what Peter says. He doesn't just say Peter said it, they believed it. He recounts what Peter actually said. So uh, maybe the place to start, what are some of the what are some of the things that Peter includes in his account that we get in Acts chapter 11 that Luke didn't record when he was giving it in Acts chapter 10? Yeah, well, I think, you know, a few key details. One of them would just be specifically this wording that Cornelius is told by the angel that when this Peter, uh, that he's, you know, Simon, who he's supposed to go and get, uh, he says that speaking, uh, you know, is going to save you. And again, particularly when we think about how Cornelius is described, this is very important, right? Because it says that him being God-fearing, him being a righteous man, him being someone who seemed to, uh, again, have an affinity for the Jewish ways and the Jewish people, none of that saved him, right? Only Peter's message, and of course, only Peter's message, because the message was about Jesus, the only one uh, who could save. Um, And so I think that's the first thing, is there's just this direct statement that what's about to happen is going to bring you salvation. Um, The other things, you know, again, kind of, I think, just point out again, God's um, sovereignty in all this, that God is making it happen. Uh, and maybe sovereignty isn't the right word there because sometimes that's used to just t- sort of talk about sort of moving the pieces together in, in sort of without, uh, what do you want to say, without reference to humanity. Uh, but here, sovereignty just in the sense that God is the one that's actually making this all occur. Uh, we're also told, right, that it's the spirit that's working through Peter's speaking. 
Uh, and again, so we know that, again, it's not Peter's eloquence. It's not Peter's uh, great logic. The spirit is at work here as Peter, you know, recounts, right? He's, he's kind of amazed, too, that when he starts this speaking, uh, that the spirit goes to work. And in fact, the spirit then, right, uh, is also given to these people uh, and, uh, you know, manifestly so, so that everyone knows they have it. Um and I think, you know, the other thing, and we can maybe talk about this more later if we want to, but there is just this mention uh, that Peter remembers Jesus's words uh, mm-hmm. about John's baptism and this idea that, you know, John baptized with water, uh, but that there was about to be uh, this baptism of the Spirit. Um, you know, we want to be a little bit uh, careful there because we unfortunately in our world have other people that like to separate, uh, you know, water baptism and spirit baptism. And that's certainly not what we're talking about here. Um, We're talking here about the difference between actually John's baptism and Christian baptism, not, you know, sort of two different forms of of Christian baptism. Uh, But I don't know how much we want to get into that today. Well, we we can we might be able to touch on that some because I do think that we want to be careful, as you said, so that we understand what Peter's remembering and what he's saying correctly in his context and not misunderstand it in the way that some Christians try to separate water baptism, spirit baptism today. That's not what's going on there. Yeah. So I, I think we we probably have some time for that. And I appreciate the way that you you point out the things that are unique or, or new to the way Peter recounts it. I think it gives us a good glimpse as to what what's going on in his own mind. And again, as the spirit leads him to speak in this way, there don't seem to be too many differences between what Peter says happens in terms of the vision and the way Luke describes it. But go ahead and, and remind us, what is this vision that Peter had there in Joppa and, and what's the point of it? Again, both from Acts 10 and as, as he recounts it in 11. Right. And so, you know, what is the point? That's kind of, you know, the immediate question. In one sense, right, this vision appears first and foremost, and I think in reality, right, is one of the ways in which God here uh, does away with the food laws of the Old Testament, um, you know, through this vision. And yet, at the same time, based on what occurs next and how that's going to relate to all of this, there's no doubt that this vision was not given solely for the purpose of talking about food laws, right? It was getting much more to this connection of unclean people and clean people. And again, although I guess the only caution I'll make is that we don't want to separate those two too far from one another. Because again, one of the reasons the Gentiles were considered so unclean is precisely because they did not follow things like the food laws, right? They, when when the Jews looked at the Gentiles and kind of, you know, imagine them peering into their house or to, to a party they're having, that's, they're disgusted, right, by what's going on, that they're eating this unclean meat, right? And they're probably engaged in other unclean activities too, uh, but there's just all this uncleanness going on. So the two, it's not just that it's an object lesson. It also has something to actually do with the fact that when the food laws go away or, you know, are, are, are you know, dealt with here, it actually removes a matter of uncleanness and reality from the Gentiles. I don't know if I'm making that clear or not. 
No, I, I think so. And I think that the key, if I can go back to something that you've said previously a, a couple of times, I think, is like who's who's doing the work here, the the passive nature of, for example, they receive the word of God. And the, the same case happens here in, in the vision that and it's it's spoken in the active sense, but God's the one doing it, that God has made things clean. And I think that's that's the key to connecting this is that these Gentiles are actually made clean by what God has done through Jesus and and therefore not made the, the cleanliness does not have to do with what they do or don't eat. It has everything to do with do they believe in Jesus or not? And that's the point is that's God's doing. And I think that's what connects these two things of the the Gentiles and the foods together that it is it it's not primarily about what Peter ate that next meal, but that's connected to. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think you know again we this is you know probably longer than we have today, but it does take us back into doing some further reading and thinking about all the you know clean and unclean and all of that kind of stuff because you know some of those things in the Bible that are called unclean we would say are also inherently sinful, right? And then right. there are other things which um, you know God just for a time called unclean in order to overall get this point across to his people that cleanliness and uncleanliness was a huge issue before God, ultimately all to prepare them for the one who would come and make all people clean, right, through through his righteousness uh, by faith. Mm, yeah, and I, that, like you said, that's a, a larger conversation than probably we have time for today, but it is important. And and just as a reminder, when it comes to the cleanliness laws, uh, particularly the ones around food, it's not a distinction between what's sinful and what's not sinful. And that's, that's something definitely to remember when it comes to those cleanliness laws in the old Testament, especially around food. It's not about like somehow pork is somehow inherently sinful. That's, that's not the point. It is a matter of, you know, how do you approach God? It is in the way that he brings you to him. And, and now maybe if we can try to keep this in the, in the Acts chapter 11 context, the way you come to God is through the cleanliness he gives through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's available to Jew and Gentile alike. Absolutely. And and so much so, right, that the Jewish people, those that are living according to the Jewish ways, must come to this saving faith in that same way. For both, it's repentance and faith, right? It's not, it's not that the Jews get in one way and the Gentiles get in through this repentance and faith thing. It's ultimately that both of them, uh, that's how they're both made clean. Now, before we get too too far away from this, Pastor Oppie, and some of the, the notes you shared with me ahead of time, you've maybe got a similarity that we can draw between Peter and the prophet Jonah. I'm not sure I've ever thought about that before. Well, yeah, it, it is kind of an interesting uh, thing that when we hear that word Joppa, right, uh, it's one of those, well, where, wait, where else does that occur in the Bible, right? And if you go searching, you find out, right, that Jonah, uh, the prophet, right, uh, starts from Joppa as well. And you think about it. Now, Jonah, back in the Old Testament, he's also going to the Gentiles, right? Going to Nineveh, which, uh, of course, uh, reluctantly so at first. But they both actually start from Joppa, and then they go uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, you know, neither is real sure about this at first, right? Uh, although Peter seems to go more uh 
easily than than Jonah, uh, but they do need this revelation from God, right? Uh, the words of God to Jonah to tell him why he is to go uh, and hear this vision that Peter gets. Uh, and then they both go. And amazingly, again, to both of them a little bit is that it works, right? Uh, they they take, take this uh, message and people repent and have faith. Um, and then, though, you know, when we get back, we got Jonah and he's kind of questioning still, you know, how all this went down and whether he's totally comfortable with it. And again, in Jerusalem, we get that similar thought here now from those of the circumcision that they're too saying, now, wait a second, right? We, we know this sort of occurred, but is it still right? Uh, so you do have some very interesting parallels there. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thought. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised to see the Lord working in similar ways throughout history. We see him do that all the time. So to see some similarities between Peter and Jonah shouldn't surprise us. I, I want to keep going here, Pastor Hoppy, as to, in particular to one of those points where you said that there's Peter emphasizes something that Luke didn't give us back in chapter 10. And that's what Peter talks about when he says about what the angel said to Cornelius. In verse 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. It's a very striking thought because, as you said, Cornelius, by the way he's presented to us, it seems to understand, and I think we could say believe, the Israelite faith, what the Old Testament taught about the coming of the Messiah, that that he, he knows those things. And, and yet, the message that Peter is is going to preach to Cornelius and his household is going to save him, as if there's there's something missing. What what is the importance of the? Again, it's a small thing, but what's the importance of that addition that we find out here in Acts chapter eleven? Right, like I think, like you were saying, you know, again, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly how the Jews would have viewed Cornelius, right? I, I don't know that they would have said he was a full Jew, right? I don't know if he would have been considered, you know, a proselyte or not. But he certainly, again, like you said, is is familiar with these things. But the key thing is that this message that is coming is the one that saves, and that again is the message. Uh, of Christ and Christ alone, and that that is the message uh, that will bring them this this salvation. Um, and it does, right? I mean, uh, and, and again, just the the nature, I mean, think about being Cornelius and hearing this. You know, in our day and age, we'd at least want to hear, well, Simon's going to come to you and he's going to talk to you about something. And then you can decide, uh, you know, whether <laughs> this is good or true or noble or right. He just says to her, Peter's coming. He's going to preach this message to you and you will be saved, right? Like it's yeah. it's going to happen. And it does. And, and blessedly so, right? Let us not, uh, uh, you know, try to get our own free will back here when God is doing a, a gracious and wonderful thing for Cornelius and for his whole household. Mm, certainly, certainly. And, you know, I think maybe this, this note about the message by which you'll be saved has less to do with any sort of speculation about what Cornelius's state was before and, and how much he did or didn't believe concerning the you know what the old testament teaches about the coming of the christ i mean we do know that all those in the old testament were saved in the same faith that we have they were looking forward to the coming christ the one who we know and believe has come jesus himself and so they they shared that faith but i, I think that the point now or, or maybe what we should get from this now is that now that jesus has come and fulfilled the old testament 
this is now the message that is proclaimed by the people of God that brings salvation and not, maybe this is part of the contrast, not how do you separate yourselves from the Gentiles by these cleanliness laws? The thing that the church is going to proclaim is Christ crucified, not clean and unclean based on what you do or don't eat. Yeah. So, yeah, if I can put it this way, right? How are you set apart from the world, right? And if you would have asked a Jew that, they would have listed a lot of these kind of cleanliness type laws. And now, right, what we're understanding is that if you're a Christian and you're asked, how are you set apart from the world? While we may be able to give additional answers, our first answer, first and foremost, is going to be, I'm set apart, right, as a child of God, baptized into his name, forgiven, because of Jesus and what he's done, period, right? And so that's, you know, that really is the difference. And it really is then a critical moment, right? Uh, I mentioned, you know, this is, ends up being for Jews and Gentiles because in the same sense, all the Jewish people believing in Jesus's day, uh, and again, they may have had misconceptions and things like that. But again, like you said, a lot of them did believe in a God who would save, But now when God reveals who that Savior is, faith requires that you acknowledge him particularly as the Savior. It's not enough now, once God has revealed how he will save and who he will save through, to just say, yeah, I still believe in a God that saves, but I don't know about that Jesus guy, right? But once he's revealed, now uh, acknowledging him, confessing him is of critical importance. Yeah, I mean, those words of of Peter, again, from the angel saying this to Cornelius, but the way Peter record or speaks about it in verse 14, it it very much in my mind reminds me of what he says, what Peter says in Acts chapter four before the, the Sanhedrin, that there's one name by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. And, and that's what the angel says, Peter's going to come and he's going to tell you this message and you will be saved by it. And as you said, blessedly so, we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss the grace of God in sending Peter to Cornelius in this way so that he and his household can be saved. Now in, in verse 16, you mentioned this, Pastor Hobby. John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter remembers this, and he 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 uses that as the interpretive key to what's going on when he sees the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles. What is what is Peter saying? Why does remembering those words of Jesus help him in this case? Well, I think particularly that he comes to understand right that the kind of key thing about baptism is the reception of the Spirit. That this is not um, one of the many Jewish just cleansings with water. But this is a particular act that God has chosen to give his Holy Spirit through. So, right, Acts 2.38 there, right, you know, of, of uh, you know, at the end of the Pentecost uh, uh, sermon, where he says, repent and, and be baptized, every one of you. You receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, I don't think anyone, you know, if, if Paul had just said, well, yeah, I, I went over there and I did a ritual cleansing with Cornelius, they, you know, they would have been like, okay, we don't know why, that's sort of our thing, what are you doing? But when it was, you know, as he puts it, that they received the, 
the spirit in the same way, you know, or the spirit fell on them to get the precise rain on them, just as on us at the beginning. He says, again, there's no doubting who's at work here. If, if you want to doubt that Cornelius is saved by God, you also then will have to cast doubt that the apostles spoke by the power of the spirit on Pentecost, right? Though he, he says, this is God's work. Uh, and here, like, uh, you know, I just want to mention again, really, Real quick is that, you know, we do have certain, uh, you know, Christians that will talk about this distinction of sort of a water baptism, which they place very little emphasis on. And then they'll sort of talk about that later you might get this secondary baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit. But again, that's, that's not at all what we're talking about. And again, you know, it, it's a topic for another day to fully discuss. But, you know, the, in the Bible, right, it is the water and the word put together that actually God has promised deliver the Holy Spirit. So for us who look to the scriptures and what they say about baptism directly, we understand that the water baptism that we have received is this baptism of the Holy Spirit as well uh, that God gives. To us, and like I said, the, the, it, this is more about John's baptism and what we will I'll call Christian baptism than it is about you know anything else. Well, and I think I think you really hit it on the head when you when you said that Peter recalling these words of Jesus is meant to put in everyone's mind and in his own mind who is at work here. It this is Jesus himself because the Holy Spirit has fallen on these Gentiles. Peter says, "Oh, I know who gives the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. He's the one who does that." And it's it's not as you said, it, it's by no means a move on Peter's part or the scripture's part to separate the spirit from the water of holy baptism. You know, this is this is Peter recognizing, "Ah, the the Holy Spirit has fallen on these Gentiles." That's what Jesus did for us on the day of Pentecost. He's doing it here again for the Gentiles. And then that that allows him to draw the conclusion that he does. And as you pointed out, that's that's really the key here. This is where Peter recalls these words of, of Jesus. He makes the case then, look, it wasn't me. I, I'm not the one who went there on my own. This was God at work. Take us again into that conclusion that he gives in verse 17. Well, yeah, and I think we should say too here, I, it's not that Peter necessarily crafts this wonderful argument on the way. This this is how right. he himself was convinced, right? I mean, so all he's doing is recounting it, right? That this is, you know, he, he was first convinced himself that, yeah, like you said, he sees this and he says, well, yeah, this has to be Jesus doing this. And now he just lays that out. But at the end, you know, so he just says, if God did this, if he's the one that gave them this gift, just as we did when we believed in Jesus, did you want me to stand in God's way, right? Did you did you want me to stand up to God and go, uh, God, you know, I think you gave out the Holy Spirit to the wrong people. Maybe you didn't know. Uh, maybe you thought Cornelius was actually a Jew, but he's he's not fully a Jew. So, you know, and, and again, I love this, right? When they heard these things, and I think, especially this specific last line, they fall silent, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't want to stand up against God either. Uh, and so, right, they then glorify God instead of standing in His way. They give Him glory. And and again, listen to the passive tense here again. Right then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And especially, I think when we hear that passive tense with repentance, it, it's particularly striking to 
us because if we want to hold on to anything, we kind of sometimes want to say, well, like, I still do all the repenting, right? Uh, Then Mm -hmm. God graciously gives me life. But here's one of the places, along with others in scriptures, right, where we get this fact that even the fact that we repent is only worked in us by God uh, and by Jesus. Right. Yeah. Repentance is a gift of God. He works it in us. And then this is a a very important passage in that sense, not only for what it says about the inclusion of the Gentiles, but just in, in general, what it says about the way that the Lord brings us to faith. He does it through giving repentance, leading to life. I mean, that just that passage on its on its own, what they glorify God and their conclusion is it's significant for all of us in the way that we're brought to faith. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, I think one of the temptations with this passage, especially because we, as we said, this distinction between Jew and Gentile seems so foreign to our day-to-day existence that we often want to move on quickly to kind of take this text and go, yeah, this means, you know, God uh, accepts everyone. He's just fine with everyone. It doesn't, you know, nothing matters. This is kind of just blows out any sort of religious constraints on anything. Uh, You know, we can kind of do this if we move too quickly. And it's important then to understand the Jew and the Gentile thing and again, the history of that and the, what can we call it, the the ages of history in that when God is working in one particular way and when he's working in uh, a different way later on, um, you know, still bringing salvation through faith. But, you know, as far as how the Gentiles and the Jews are considered, uh, it's a little bit different. But I think there's a danger there that we might just go too far into just saying, well, this is just about God accepting everyone. So especially in our day and age, right? This is one of the key messages of our culture is that, you know, when they people say God loves everyone, what they mean by that most often is that God accepts everyone without any sort of judgment, without any sort of um, worry about their life or their faith, really, but, you know, just accepts everyone. And again, that's not what's going on here either. Yeah, no, that's a very excellent point, Pastor Hoppy. It reminds me of what we talked about this when Peter preached in Cornelius's house in Acts 10 verses 34 and 35. I think there's the danger for that similar misunderstanding. As Peter begins his sermon there, you know, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And particularly in our day and age, there's a, a danger in, in interpreting that incorrectly. Just do whatever you think is great and, and God's going to be good with that. Well, this verse here, Acts 11, verse 18, I think provides a a nice conclusion to that and prevents that sort of misunderstanding that really centers what's going on here is that Jew and Gentile alike are given life through repentance that God grants, and it's all centered in Christ Jesus. Got about a minute left here, Pastor Hoppy. Help us to wrap things up with Acts chapter 11 today. Well, yeah, as you just said, I think the real key thing is just to recognize that the real point of this is, you know, no longer once Jesus is here, are there any sort of ethnic divisions, geographical, cultural, any of those kind of things that anyone is, you know, not able to receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from Jesus, right? Uh, And 
that's what is going on here. I've said before, you know, it's not what's going on several times. That is what is going on here. Uh, you know, this is about all people being welcome and, and forgiven uh, and healed by Jesus, right? Being given eternal life uh, through the gift of the Spirit. And what a wondrous thing this is, right? That, that this message, this Jesus is for all people uh, and that God brings it about, Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas, helping us today with Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. Good to be with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 11, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.